Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Da-da. With episode 417 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in AEW and NXT. We have AEW still kind of coming off of its revolution pay-per-view. NXT now quickly on the build to stand and deliver a premium live event on night one of WrestleMania 39, I should say, afternoon one, I guess, of WrestleMania 39, going down earlier that day, April 1st on Saturday. Only two NXT shows left coming out of Tuesday night, so they are fast on their way to that event, building it up, setting matches, and we're going to break all of that down on today's show. Let's get started, as we always do here on Getting Over, with a reminder that this podcast is all about So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, so much more. You can get it all at Getting Overcast on Twitter. Now, for today's show, we are taping it in the evening on Thursday, which is way later than we normally do. So we're not going to waste a lot of time. We're going to get into breaking down both shows. We're going to start with NXT. We're going to move on to AEW, of course, talking Dynamite and Rampage all mixed up together. And we do have timestamps in our episode description. So if for some reason you only want to listen to one brand or the other, you can jump around. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire damn show. So as I said, we're going to kick things off with NXT this week, given Stand and Deliver is on the way. Uh, Braun Breaker got confronted by Tony D'Angelo and Stax. They offered to take out Carmelo Hayes for him. Breaker made fun of them with some mafia movie references before ultimately declining. D'Angelo then said he wanted them to go after some tag team gold, given how much Starks has sacrificed for him recently. The Braun part of this was slightly odd, given the D'Angelo family are supposed to be faces now, but I guess them not attacking him when he declined perhaps proved that they're baby faces now. And the tag team division move for them did seem to be coming, so it makes a lot of sense. It's a down division. It can use some fresh blood. It is a smart decision to put D'Angelo and Stax there as of right now. So that just brings us to the main event of NXT. That was the Braun Breaker Carmelo Hayes contract signing. Melo wondered why there was no host in the segment, and then they started just getting into it when Pretty Deadly entered to take the role of host. More on that coming up later. Uh, Melo put Braun over for his title reign, but said April 1st was the changing of a guard, with him planning to take the NXT championship further than Braun ever could. Breaker said Melo elevated the North American title because he wasn't ready for the big strap, and while Melo may not miss, that would change at Stand and Deliver. Braun said he wanted the best version of Melo, the guy who elevated the title, beat Ricochet. Melo said he didn't want the gimmicky versions of Braun, you know, the fisherman and this person and that person. He wants the guy who runs through walls, won at war games, and made Tommaso Ciampa tap out. That way, Melo said, when he beats Braun, there's going to be no excuses left. 
They continue putting each other over, saying it's the youngest main event in WrestleMania weekend history. They signed the contract and shook hands, and a bunch of fans just kind of stood to cheer. Like, they gave them a standing ovation. That's how excited they are for the match. But Pretty Deadly begged for some drama. They didn't think it was a good contract signing. So both faces, or both um, the champion and the challenger, ripped off their shirts, and they double-bombed Deadly Guys through the table to a really loud NXT chant that ended the show. And Trick Williams didn't really factor into this at all, but he did laugh at those guys at the end, which was pretty funny. This was just an awesome contract signing, I thought, and it was a great capper to a really strong edition of NXT. It's also far and away the best that Breaker has come across individually, but a Breaker feud has been booked in the last calendar year or I should say in the last 12 months, because I'm really talking back to WrestleMania last year. And this was appropriate given the stakes of the match itself. Braun finally came across like a real person again. Melo showed a ton of confidence without being kind of forced to rely on Trick to prop him up. Each put each other over strong despite expecting himself individually to win. And they're not forcing Melo into a heel role, which is a proper decision given he's going to get cheered at Stand and Deliver. Oh, and on top of that, they paid off the whole pretty deadly inclusion in fun fashion. I just thought it was a superb contract signing. It was well-paced. The promos were good, and it was super entertaining. And it's not often that we get all three of those elements from a contract signing. Now, earlier in the show, uh, and really on Twitter before NXT even began, Shawn Michaels announced that Roxanne Perez was indeed discharged from the hospital last Friday, but with her health in question, qualification matches would be held for an NXT Women's Championship ladder match at Stand and Deliver. He said it was a, quote, possibility that a new champion would be crowned and did not refer to the title as vacated or relinquished. Now, this all came about with Roxy's storyline collapse from exhaustion after fighting Mako Satamura last week. Later in the show, Roxy's doctor said all the tests on her are clear, and while she is stable, they cannot clear her to compete until they determine the reason for her collapse and that she may even need to consult a psychologist. So that led us into the qualifying matches for this ladder match. The first was Sol Ruka against Zoe Stark. Stark hit a great code breaker out of the corner. Ruka came back with a handspring lariat into a power slam, plus a flying moonsault outside, but Stark caught her clean on a springboard moonsault coming back inside with the Z360 for the win. Now it's clear that Ruka and Stark have been working together off screen because they just have immense chemistry Ruka really does seem to have all the makings of, you know, I hate to put her in this context, but a young Charlotte Flair, with the difference being she is far more athletic, and Stark is, as we know, a top-tier worker, so seeing them going against each other was really cool. We got the right winner here. Stark should be in the match, but it was a good featured spot for Ruka. Uh, JC Jane backstage refused to give Gigi Dolan credit for her clean win at Roadblock, she had her arm in a sling, saying that she separated one minute into the match. JC called Gigi pathetic for counting that as a win, promising to break Dolan's heart and face when she's eventually cleared to return. And it was a really good promo from JC. Now, whether the injury is real or kayfabe, it does help explain the match booking last week. If you remember, we were pretty critical of it. Um, if it is legitimate, then she won't be out too, too long, given it is just a separation. Josh Briggs and Fallon Henley wore camouflage to break into Kiana James' office. Henley found a signed contract for James to be in one of the qualifying matches. They also found her planner that had Operation Boyfriend written in one part of it. In another part, there was a note to get Brooks Jensen to convince Henley to tag with James. And then there were also two dates scribbled in with someone named Sebastian, along with a card for the Roses 
from the same guy. We remember she hit it last week. It was actually one of the better segments that they've done with a couple nice comedic bits. And then later backstage, James couldn't reach Henley and she decided to go to the ring by herself for her qualifying match. So that match was Dolan against James, which is why we broke down those segments before we got to the match itself. Dolan hit three kicks and a really cool leg sweep Uranagi before hitting her abdominal stretch bomb finisher for the win. And this was even quicker than the first qualifier. That's disappointing in a way given James is one half of the women's tag team champions and Dolan is someone they're clearly pushing as a singles competitor. Alba Fire and Isla Dawn attacked James briefly after the bell until Jensen made the save. This came after they were involved in a match earlier. We're gonna get to that in a second. And then later backstage, James and Jensen were angry at Henley and Briggs and all four of them kind of argued. I still just legitimately do not understand why they changed the women's tag team titles. The split for these two doesn't need them. If it had to be a transitional move, I just feel like there's a better way they could have done it. I'm just not loving the women's tag team title storyline overall, largely because of the involvement of Henley and James. Uh, Caden Carter and Katana Chance fought Ivy Nile and Tatum Paxley, as well as Alba Fire and Isla Dawn in a triple threat women's tag team number one contendership match. That was a mouthful. The best part about it, or not the best part about it, but a good part about it was they used the correct triple threat rules with three women legal at a given time. And we'll reference that a little bit later in the show. Uh, Paxley was pissed at Nile before the match for not being focused. Then she pulled her arm away from a tag midway through saying they were never actually a tag team. Fire pushed Chance off the top rope as the Casey's went for their finisher. Then Paxley booted Nile in the stomach and threw her into the ring as Fire and Dawn combined for an assisted backstabber swanton bomb to get the pin and become the number one contenders. Again, this was way too short for a triple threat number one contendership match, but the action was strong. The finish did protect the Casey's. The right team won. And that finisher, holy shit, that's what I'm always talking about when it comes to doing inventive tag team finishing maneuvers. Great stuff there. And a title change at Stand and Deliver cannot come soon enough. And regarding Paxley's heel turn, you know, if we're being honest, she's actually on the right side here, okay? She was only ever with Nile for Ivy's convenience. She spent nearly a year around Diamond Mine. They never made her a member. And while they did team a few times, she was always an outsider compared to the trio. So it sucked to see a women's tag team split, one of the few that they have in NXT. But this did make total sense in kayfabe. So because of that, I was okay with it. Uh, Johnny Gargano actually opened NXT to welcome home chance as he asked the fans to watch his six from another Grayson Waller attack, like when he did his farewell speech, you know, a couple years ago. Uh, Gargano said he was back to finish a story, and while he actually respected Waller trying to make a name for himself by attacking him, he didn't accomplish anything with any of that momentum like Tommaso Ciampa did when he attacked Gargano all those years ago. Gargano said NXT would always be his home, and you don't screw with a man's home. Conveniently, Vic Joseph showed him that Waller was actually at Gargano's own home, which led Johnny to run off. Then later in the show, Waller tried to sneak attack Gargano when he arrived at his home, but Gargano initially got up on him until Candice LeRae and Quill, his 13-month-old infant son, uh, they ended up coming out of the door and distracting him. Waller hit a low blow and broke a rake over his back in front of the baby. Now, what popped me most about this is that baby wrestling is involved in his first angle at 13 months old. Now, that is really baby wrestling. But really, this was great stuff overall. Gargano and Waller already had every reason to fight. This just amped up the intensity even further. This is going to be a banger match at Stand and Deliver. 
And I do hope that Gargano wins, uh, both because he kind of shouldn't be losing given he's a main roster superstar and Waller isn't a champion. And also because Waller doesn't need to win for his story. In fact, it would probably be better if he lost, left NXT, and then showed up on a main roster, different brand than Gargano. So that is ultimately what I hope the booking looks like when we get to it. Isla Dragunov explained how J.D. McDonough has consistently been a thorn in his side from NXT UK all the way to the United States, and he said the only way that he can move forward is to get rid of him once and for all. J.D. said their feud is unavoidable and that it was Isla who drove him out of the UK, then followed him to the U.S. and ruined his title opportunities. Dragunov said he would end the feud next week, leaving him a pile of bones. J.D. answered back, saying they were two sides of the same coin. Fans chanted for them to fight, and they got into it. They brawled out into the parking lot, then later backstage where Wesley walked by and then exchanged some shots with McDonough. Now, first of all, this was an intense confrontation, and it provided a great build to what should be an absolute banger match next week. It just really feels like this should have been on stand and deliver, but I know they don't want to go more than five or six matches, and they're basically already at that number, as we will discuss momentarily. But there was also this really super smart visual contrast that they did here. JD was wearing a black shirt and white pants, and Isla had a white shirt and black pants, proving they are indeed yin and yang, two sides of the same coin. I just thought that was such a really nice touch. Uh, There was a Scripps vignette for the first time in a while where he broke pencils and crumpled paper. It looked like he was taking on a more serious look, and it looked like the mask was more luchador style and a little bit more normal. So I saw the vignette, and I was like, you know what? I don't care about Scripps, but I'm kind of interested to see if they re-debut him and he looks different. So Wes Lee was confronted in the NXT parking lot earlier in the day by Axiom, who said he would shadow Wes all day so no one took his open challenge spot. They went to lunch, and I thought they were going to do like a fun of quick videos of Axiom shadowing Wes Lee in the locker room, the bathroom, doing an interview, you know, whatever, but they never went back to it. It was a huge missed opportunity for some easy comedy of this masked dude stalking Wes Lee with his knowledge for an entire day. Anyway, we again got an open challenge brawl, and while Axiom got into the ring first, Scripps attacked him with a flying senton, and Scripps was the exact same as he looked before, nothing new like I thought in the vignette. Then Dragunov and McDonough from the earlier segment fought in and out of the ring, so Lee got pissed and hit a huge Topecon hero outside the ring into like 20 dudes, he wiped them out, they all brawled, and the open challenge never happened. So later in the show, the NXT Anonymous account later um, tweeted this video of Wesley and Shawn Michaels arguing. Shawn said that Wes had to stop doing the open challenges because shit was getting too chaotic. Wesley said, hey, I'm just trying to prove myself. Shawn's like, you don't need to prove yourself. And Wes is like, I got to prove myself. I got to show that I'm a real champion. I want 10 challengers at Stand and Deliver. Shawn said that's ridiculous, which of course it's ridiculous. I'll meet you in the middle. We'll do a fatal five-way, four challengers, and you get to pick all of them. It was a fun segment overall, but it was disappointing not to get a match when it's advertised. Now, the anonymous video was done extremely well. It seemed like we were headed for a North American title ladder match like a week ago, as is tradition, but instead, they're giving the ladder match stipulation to the women's title. So now there's going to be two multi-person title matches on the show, one with a ladder, one without. And that to me is just odd to do it with that many people in two separate matches. It feels like they should do something different here. Make it 
an elimination match. Just differentiate this from the other match even more than not having a ladder, especially if the idea is for Wesley to prove himself doing an elimination where he can get a couple falls, especially if he ends up losing the title, he could still prove himself even in defeat. Dragon Lee backstage said he was excited to begin his new journey, and he wants to stand as an example for Lucha Libre while proving he's special. It was a pretty good first promo from a guy who said upon being hired, one of the reasons he wanted to start in NXT was to hone his promo skills. Uh, The tag team championships were on the line. Gallus defended against Pretty Deadly. Wolfgang got thrown over the announce table as Deadly grabbed both titles, using one to distract the referee as Mark Coffey ate the other to the back of his head for a false finish. Wolfgang pulled the ropes to stop spilt milk with Gallus hitting a lifted knee helicopter slam, some combined tag team finisher, to retain the titles. And this was way better than like the kick to the back power slam. So, you know, similar idea, This one was way flashier, so big improvement there. Uh, I maintain that Gallus are just boring-ass champions for this brand. The crowd did get way up for the finish, though, and hopefully Pretty Deadly is off to the main roster soon. They're ready. Later in the show, Pretty Deadly agreed with each other that they should host Stand and Deliver, which, of course, them being hosts of a show is a perfect fit, and that is what led to them being part of that Braun Breaker Carmelo Hay segment that I mentioned off the top here. Apollo Crews fought Dabakato. After Cruz got in the ring, he bugged his eyes out in a really odd fashion, then splashed Cato outside before the bell. Cato got plenty of offense, but Cruz went on a run and hit a truly sick Olympic slam on a guy Cato's size. Really impressive, plus a frog splash for a flat two count. Cato then caught Cruz running outside for a choke bomb into the base of the steel steps. Those were broken apart earlier. Cruz beat the count at 9.5, but Cato immediately lifted him for a sit-down choke bomb to get the win. Cruz's eyes bugged out a second time after the bell. Apollo, like, sure is taking a ton of losses. I think he's lost every feud he's been in since returning to NXT. I know he did win a number one contendership at one point, but I think he's lost everything else. Credit to him, though, because he made Daba Kato look good here. And credit to Kato himself for clearly improving in the ring from the last time that we saw him actually wrestle. The guy kind of looks legitimate. I'm not saying he's going to be a big star or anything, But I think he can go a little bit. So, you know, credit to him. Uh, Andre Chase and Duke Hudson got into it again as Tyler Bate and Thea Hale did yoga. Chase explained that Chase U is about more than wins and losses, but learning, growing, and preparing for the future. Chase pointed out that's exactly what's currently happening to Hudson, who used to just coast by as a failure, the poker gimmick, all that shit, but has now found his passion. Ava was stalking them in her mask. She removed it. She smiled at Hudson. He kind of contemplated the whole deal. And that was really it. It was a nice layer to the story but it kind of seems like it's going nowhere. I'm sure Chase, you'll either break up or solidify from feuding with, you know, Schism. But, you know, you guys know I don't love Schism and therefore not loving this that much, even though it does make sense given they're both trying to teach people and recruit people just in different ways. So that was NXT this week. With that, let's go book the damn territory for NXT Stand and Deliver. We'll go over which matches are confirmed and one that seems likely to be added. These are the confirmed matches. The NXT Championship, Braun Breaker against Carmelo Hayes. That will be the main event. Women's Championship ladder match featuring Zoe Stark, Gigi Dolan. We'll find out who else might be involved and possibly still a returning Roxanne Perez if she is cleared, whether in kayfabe or reality, to compete. We'll find out if they're going to crown a new women's champion or if Perez will be defending her title in that match. Johnny Gargano against Grayson Waller in a grudge match. 
North American Championship Fatal Five-Way, Wes Lee against four competitors of his choosing, the Women's Tag Team Championship Fallon Henley and Tatum Paxley against Alba Fire and Isla Dawn, and then the last match likely to be added but not there yet, the Tag Team Championship Gallus, perhaps against Tony D'Angelo and Stax. So right now we can't count that. Looking at those other five matches, that is an extremely strong card. I mean, Breaker and Mello is the match that we've been waiting for really since the start of NXT 2.0. The women's ladder match should be exciting. They already have two really talented women in the match. You add Roxy, you add one or two other you know, supreme talents. I'm sure Tiffany Stratton will be in that match. Maybe she even does a moonsault off the ladder. That's looking like it's going to be a damn good match. Johnny Gargano and Grayson Waller, we know that's going to be a banger. Wesley, North American Championship. We'll see who he chooses. I'm sure Axiom will be one of those, but that's going to be a fantastic match. You just know it. And then the Women's Tag Team Championship. I don't necessarily have high hopes for the match, but Fire and Dawn winning the Women's Tag Team titles would really boost up that division and be uh, smart for them given they're now a team and it doesn't seem like they're going to be breaking up anytime soon. So that is where NXT Stand and Deliver stands uh, right now with two more NXT episodes to go until the biggest NXT show of the year. With that, let's move over to AEW, where we're going to break down Dynamite and Rampage based on storyline all together. So Dynamite opened with MJF's Rebar Mitzvah. He came out in a full yarmulke and talus. Uh, He made out with an actress before getting into the ring. MJF opened saying that Sean was better than Brett for cheap heat. He claimed he lost his virginity at his original bar mitzvah. Bullshit. Uh, They did the horror when Jungle Boy, Sammy Guevara, and Darby Allin all entered one after another in succession and simultaneously asked for a title match. Jack complained that MJF gets to do whatever he wants and has never been on Rampage or Dark. Sammy complained about grinding on the independence while Max had it easy. Then he strangely broke the fourth wall, saying he was told when he was hired by AEW that he was going to be the job guy for Chris Jericho. Darby talked about dropping out of school and loving AEW because it lets him be himself before making fun of his coworkers not being happy in AEW and MJF doing his bidding war of 2024 shtick. MJF then pulled off his glasses and hat because he was angry. That revealed two black eyes and a bloody eye, supposedly all from the Iron Man match against Brian Danielson. MJF pointed out how they respectively had Christian Cage, Jericho, and Sting kind of getting their backs while he's done everything on his own. A camera caught Jack looking at Sammy, mouthing the words, this doesn't make any sense while he was talking, which I I don't know if he was talking about MJF's promo or the segment, but it was weird. Uh, MJF then pointed out how he beat all of them one-on-one, factual, and that none of them deserves a title shot. He shoved Jack in the face, so Jack hit him from behind with the microphone. And then as the others brawled, MJF got bounced off the apron into his cake outside. Now, there were a couple parts of this segment that made me cringe, namely Sammy's promo and some of MJF's Judaism comments. Uh, And I say that I'm not religious, but as a Jewish person, I didn't love the way he used it to kind of generate heel heat. It just, it was a little bit off-putting. But Besides that, this was largely a strong opener and a real rare opportunity for us to see the four pillars all together in the ring at the same time. Everyone made good, logical points, and it's in its entirety, this felt like a unique, inventive segment that AEW just has not done before. It was one of the best opening segments for a Dynamite 
that I've seen in a long time because A, it wasn't a match, and B, it, it actually peaked and maintained my interest throughout the entire thing. The one problem is that none of the three would-be challengers are can really be bought as legitimate world title contenders at this time. Now, if this is the direction they go for MJF's next challenger, I would much prefer a triple threat number one contendership to determine the challenger rather than a fatal four-way title match. How they do this going forward will go a long way to determining the value of this segment, though it will be good for the future of video packages and they can reference back to it. That's going to be a positive no matter what. On Rampage, Action Andretti fought Sammy Guevara. Andretti hit a springboard 450 in a Spanish fly. Guevara countered a running shooting star press and hit a flip DDT where Andretti landed on the back of his head and neck. It was really ugly. Uh, then he splashed Sammy off the top rope through the timekeeper's table at ringside, but Daniel Garcia pushed him off the top rope inside with Guevara hitting a GTH for the win. There were some crazy spots in this match. Finish was repetitive. Some of those high-risk moves for me they lose impact when they're just done over and over and over again, but there's no doubt that this was an entertaining match. On Dynamite, Blackpool Combat Club fought Hangman Page, Evil Uno, and Stu Grayson. Now, this marked a return for Grayson as a one-off appearance after AEW let his contract expire. He's Canadian, and really, that was the only explanation for him being back. Uh, Grayson ate spike pile drivers outside and inside. Hangman went on a run with Uno, hitting a really sick swanton bomb on Wheeler Yuta. Hangman set up for a buckshot lariat, but Yuta knocked him off the apron with a ring bell shot to the head. Grayson went on a nice run with a tope over the ring post as Uno hit Mox with Paradigm Shift. Grayson followed with a 450 nearly midway into the ring for a false finish. Then they hit their fatality finisher only for Yuta to break the fall. Grayson ended up being singled out in the ring. He ate a pop-up European uppercut and he tapped out while in Mox's rear naked choke. After the bell, Mox moved into a bulldog choke. Uno eventually broke it all up, only to get beat down himself, and then the rest of Dark Order ran out and cleared the ring. This was great. I mean, this match right here was a straight-up banger. And really, the only mistake was Hangman eating the ring bell too early in the match. This, though, served as a way to confirm and strengthen the heel turn for the BCC, which should probably change its name now that I think about it. Anyway, super fun match from Bell to Bell, 4.25 stars and an A, and Grayson was the MVP of the entire thing. Uh, the main event of Dynamite was a trios championship match, House of Black defending against the Elite and Jericho Appreciation Society. They again went with the far inferior rules of there only being two legal men at a time, despite it being a triple threat match. The big pops on tags came for Jericho and Kenny Omega, Everything broke down about one-third of the way into the match. Tagging almost completely stopped. They still tagged, but no rules or, or time counts or anything like that was followed. Jericho intercepted a V-trigger with Walls of Jericho, but eight stereo super kicks. The Young Bucks then delivered th those kicks to everyone in the match. Jericho and Omega later combined for a superplex of Brody King in a great moment. Then Jericho caught Omega with a codebreaker for a false finish. Matt Jackson went on his run of Northern Light suplexes. Jericho interrupted a Melter driver attempt with a codebreaker. Garcia set up Guevara for a shooting star press on Matt that was quickly broken. Jericho then ate Dante's Inferno for a broken fall. Jericho caught Brody with the bat for a false finish. Commentary complained about it being illegal, but a tri triple threat match, I don't know what the referee would have done. Anyway, that was also a broken fall. Uh, Jericho lined up for Judas Effect only to eat Black Mass. Garcia then took Dante's Inferno with a double cover for the win. 
During the match, BCC and Dark Order continued to brawl backstage. It was announced that Uno was hospitalized with Grayson joining him in the hospital. Then after the bell, Jake Hager ran down for no reason whatsoever. The BCC and Dark Order brawl that was happening backstage spilled down the ramp. And then at this moment, my DVR cut off. But from what I saw online, uh, the BCC approached Hangman alone in the ring. The Elite jumped into the ring to get his back. Hangman was kind of between both of them. He turned around, saw the Elite behind him, and the show ended. Now, starting with the match, there were parts of it that were straight up thrilling. But man, this crowd completely died for the finish. And that's not because the heels won, because that usually doesn't matter in AEW. It was just the ending sequences got kind of sloppy. The lack of tagging made it a bit confusing. And I'm almost positive, like 95%, that Jericho was the legal man, yet it was Garcia who got pinned. It just wasn't done well. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that it was really fun, Bell to Bell, but it did, for me, ruin the payoff of the entire thing. But what the crowd really cared about in this match was Omega and Jericho. We got taste of that. They got taste of that. It felt like we should probably get more. However, AEW is going to be running this kind of Canadian tour. I believe it's this summer. So I assume at some point they're going to do Kenny Omega, Chris Jericho, and they'll probably do it as part of that tour. So that's probably why they didn't do more of it. In their first defense of the titles, House of Black, the biggest problem, was a complete afterthought to the other sides. And they were even an afterthought to people not in the match who came down to brawl at the end of the show. So between JAS, the Elite, Blackpool Combat Club, Dark Order, and House of Black, the fifth most important group in this segment, as it turned out at the very end, was House of Black. Now, in terms of the post-match, we've been waiting for Hangman and the Elite to get back together. And this sets the stage for an angle that could possibly go through the end of the year or all the way to next year's revolution. It was one of the best cliffhangers that AEW has done to end a show in a long, long time. And I actually want to watch next week to see what's going to happen next. That's something AEW has largely been missing with its booking over the better part of really the last year. But they started the show hot. They closed the show hot in between. Well, let's get to that right now. On Dynamite, there was an international championship match, Orange Cassidy defending against Jeff Jarrett. The title leveled up by Orange taking the new one off a pedestal and replacing it in his backpack, which you see leveled up the title thanks to Shazam Fury of the Gods. Jarrett leveled up by mocking Cassidy early. Satnam Singh leveled up by heaving Orange back into the ring. Jarrett teased a figure four, but leveled up with a sharpshooter for some cheap heat. Orange came back leveling up by reversing the sharpshooter. The heels distracted more with Jarrett getting the figure four before they shazammed each other with punches. Jarrett ran Cassidy into the referee, but another one ran down to ensure that he didn't level up with a guitar shot. Singh then got the guitar away with Orange selling a knee and the heels got ejected. Orange hit a really slow tornado DDT, then he leveled up with a kip up, but Jarrett argued with the referee as Jay Lethal leveled up himself by nailing Orange with the Golden Globe for a false finish. Then Tramparetta leveled up by taking out Lethal. Orange punch failed, and Orange again sold the knee injury. So Jarrett put him in the stroke, but Orange leveled up, got out of it, and was somehow able to hit the Orange punch, I guess because he leveled up, for the title retention. All right, I had some fun there with the breakdown. But to get serious about it, the match wasn't my taste at all. You guys know that. But even though it was like constant theatrics from bell to bell, the crowd absolutely loved this. 
and that energy came through the TV screen, which got me to enjoy it more because I saw other people were enjoying it. And this stuff is needed in wrestling. That's what makes sports entertainment a good time. I just don't like that there's an entire title reign kind of dedicated to this type of stuff, especially when the thing was getting leveled up. On Dynamite, Juice Robinson got a promo package asking what Ricky Starks was going to do about his attack last week, assuming he probably wouldn't do anything. Decent promo, didn't really move it forward. Starks later said the Bullet Club hasn't been relevant since 2015, and he was willing to fight both Juice and, and the faction, anyone from the faction, anytime they want. It was another decent promo, not his normal high-level stuff. Uh, on Rampage, Powerhouse Hobbs and QT Marshall got a promo package where they said nothing besides QT promising to unveil details about Wardlow's robbery on the debut episode of QTV. So we got QTV on Dynamite. This was basically a TMZ parody, but it was more like a ripoff of the TMZ parody that Andy Samberg did in the movie Popstar, which is a great movie, by the way, significantly underrated. Anyway, it turns out Aaron Solo broke into the car and stole both the title and Wordlow's passport. They made two different WWE references before Hobbs said, welcome to Will's world, which is somehow even worse than the book of Hobbs. This is like fine as a low card deal, but it killed Hobbs title win when QT Marshall helped him. And this segment is starting to murder his momentum. This was a zero. Block at zero. Uh, Ray Phoenix ended up challenging Hobbs later on Dynamite for the TNT title. So another singles loss for Ray Phoenix is forthcoming. On Rampage, Mark Briscoe hit the ring with his ROH tag team title, explaining that he suggested a reach for the sky ladder match to determine new champions. The Lucha Bros were appropriately the first entrance and they should probably be the winners. Uh, it's a cool and really touching match concept given the circumstances. And the bout, the fight is going to be straight up fire. My confusion was why this happened on Rampage, because Tony Khan said really matter-of-factly that ROH stuff would not be on AEW television anymore. If this is the lone exception because of Mark Briscoe, I'm obviously totally cool with that. It just seemed weird. They're doing uh, ROH streaming right now. They have their new show, and they're talking about the ROH title on AEW TV when they said they weren't doing it. But again... If that was the reason, because it's Briscoe, that's fine. On Rampage, Rio fought Nyla Rose. Nyla hit a nice power slam and then a guillotine knee drop for a 2.9, but she missed a swanton bomb with Rio hitting a fisherman suplex bridge for a near fall. That was a great spot. Uh, she had a crucifix bomb with a botched pin attempt. Marina Shafir distracted, but Rio countered the beast bomb into an ankle hook pinning combination to get the win. The heels immediately attacked with a beast bomb and then left with the newly named Outcasts walking by them to randomly spray stuff on her stomach and her back. The whole thing ended with a thud. It was just a shame to take a hot result where Riho was getting over and completely negate the positive reaction for a cheap, repetitive attack. So over on Dynamite, the outcast came out to their own theme and big screen video. Ruby Soho said the grass used to be greener in AEW until a couple bitches pissed all over that. Soraya said without the, them, that trio, there would be no women's division. She called the fans twats, and Tony Storm called them fat. Storm was angry that they cheered for Jamie Hayter, who cheated to beat her. That led Hayter and Britt Baker down to attack, and they were wearing Canadian tuxedos, which I just thought was hilarious. Uh, Britt went to use her belt, and they quickly got outnumbered three to two. Baker took Destination Unknown. Hayter ate Storm Zero before Riho. 
Sky Blue, and Willow Nightingale made the save. This was not a terrible segment, but it wasn't great either. The outcast name is such an eye roll when Soraya and Storm left WWE of their own volition and were welcomed into AEW with massive appreciation. I didn't hate this as much as the prior ones, nor was it as good as Ruby's solo segment last week. On Dynamite, we had a TBS championship, Jade Cargill against Nicole Matthews. Now, Nicole was billed as a four-time Canadian champion who's competed in Shimmer. She ate a boot and jaded and lost in 30 seconds. Renee Paquette asked Cargill what kind of competition she was seeking, so Jade bullied her into the corner until Taya Valkyrie came out. That's Frankie Monet from NXT, if you didn't know her outside of WWE. Uh, they went face-to-face with Jade eventually backing away, only for Layla Gray to attack. She then ate basically jaded from Taya, which is technically a move that Valkyrie did well before Cargill, though after Beth Phoenix. Anyway, that ended the segment. AEW spent an entire week promising a big Canadian challenger for Jade in a title match on the show. And while technically we did get a Canadian challenging for the title on the show and a future major Canadian challenger for the title, they not only didn't deliver a big match on the show as anticipated, they put on a 30-second squash. Now, if the Jade Taya match happened immediately after, it would have been a solid bit of booking. She runs through someone, turns out to get a much tougher opponent, and struggles to beat her at the end. Instead, it was shit like the rest of what they do with Jade. Taya ain't ending that title reign, even if she was announced as officially signed to AEW by Tony Khan on Twitter. Also, it looks like AEW is like moving its women's matches, at least occasionally, from the penultimate segment of the show to the penultimate segment of the first hour. So it's slightly different, but really not that much different. To wrap it up though, Ty is a great signing and AEW, you know, credit to them. They are steadily improving their women's division and they're doing it at a time where WWE's is steadily declining largely because of booking. So it's pretty interesting to see. On Rampage, Konosuke Takeshka fought Preston Vance. Takeshka countered into a backslide to get the one, two, three. Nice pop for the W. Don Callis was on commentary singing his praises. There was no storyline development or really anything to this. On Rampage, the Acclaimed fought Starboy, Charlie, and Jack Cartwheel. Acclaimed hit Scissor Me Timbers, the rival, and Mike dropped to win in 100 seconds. Excalibur called it a great pro wrestling victory. No idea what he's smoking. Daddy Magic and Cool Hand came out with JAS shirt and... They were just trying to lure the Acclaimed into JS as sports entertainers. That was the whole segment. On Dynamite, there was a short music video of Acclaimed interacting with fans. It was all right. Uh, the 2.0 guys then cut a backstage promo telling the Acclaimed to watch Rampage. This also was a total waste of time. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland was angry backstage that Keith Lee took out his mogul affiliates but said he had more bullets in the chamber that he won't see coming. It was a fine promo, but mostly nothing. It's a shame that this is being dragged out on the B-Show. I am curious to see if Keith Lee beating up both mogul affiliates like ends the group because it hasn't been received well and Swerve is back on his own, but he's saying he has more bullets in the chamber. So maybe he's going to replace them with other members. Who the hell knows what's happening here? Matt Hardy also apologized on Rampage to Stokely Hathaway. He was kind of fake crying uh, for getting him in the match with Hook. He promised to train him for it. That was that storyline. And really lastly here, the MVP of Dynamite was probably the dude sitting on the entryway wearing a Shockmaster mask that Taz, a wrestling historian himself, somehow mistook for a stormtrooper at one point. The guy knocked the cosplay out of the park. Truly great stuff. So a little bit of extra credit to him. As you could say, we acknowledge you. (sighs) 
Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. We really should save that sound drop for like listeners, but in this case, for a Shockmaster cosplay, you're going to get it, buddy. And lastly here, just a news item for AEW. There was a report last week that AEW is getting a fourth hour of wrestling TV that's going to air Saturdays at 6.05 p.m. on TBS, which is a nice throwback time slot. But another hour of wrestling when we only get one or two decent Rampage episodes like per quarter, and AEW is also producing Dark, Elevation, and now a weekly Ring of Honor show on streaming. I just, man, it seems like it's gonna be way too much, but hey, credit to them that they got it and that Warner is buying into what AEW is selling. That's a positive for them long-term. And that, folks, is it from this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, breaking down NXT, of course, and AEW. As I noted, Stand and Deliver just a couple of weeks away, so two more NXT episodes left. Next week will be a normal show, and then two weeks from now, we will have separate NXT and AEW episodes. That way, we can do an NXT Stand and Deliver Ultimate Preview. All of that coming up soon here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On the way out, allow me to remind you that this show is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. If you leave a five-star written review to tell everyone why you love the show, we will read it live right here on the podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis, so much more. You can get it all on Twitter at Getting Overcast. I appreciate all of you joining me once again. We will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode on the road to WrestleMania 39. But at this point, the Silver King is going to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.